Welcome to the All In Gospel Bible Study. Each week, we move chapter by chapter through the Bible towards a comprehensive understanding of what the Bible teaches. All In Gospel is recorded live in White Bear Lake, Minnesota, featuring Dr. Sean Dickers. All right, Ezra chapter 5 is where we'll pick up tonight. We'll do one paragraph and then we're going to pack Haggai in there. And we'll get that prophecy in tonight and we'll just do one chapter in Ezra. So the restoration of the temple uh, has been halted because there's been people that have just harassed them and stolen things and interrupted the construction and sent legal suits to Persia and they have been paused. But Ezra chapter 5, then the prophets... Haggai and Zechariah, the son of Edo, prophets, prophesied to the Jews who were in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of the God of Israel who was over them. So Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Yeshua, the son of Josadak, rose up and began to build the house of God, which is in Jerusalem, and the prophets of God were with them, helping them. It's interesting in the verse 1 they have the prophet of Haggai, Edos, and Haggai and Zechariah, and then they were prophets, and then they prophesied. They literally use all the different forms of the word prophet three times in that verse, showing, or, or an emphasis then is shown when you see things repeated. The emphasis is very clear. It's likely they wouldn't have restarted the construction if it wasn't for the prophecies. If it wasn't for God's word coming to the people through the prophets, this wouldn't have happened. But it does. They found joy in rebuilding the altar in chapter 3, which that joy and that praise drew their enemies in chapter 4. And they were very cautious to do everything that was written, as we've seen in Ezra so far. They're taking every attention to do things properly. And the daily sacrifices, there's no indication that those stopped. So the enemy thinks that they win when they stop the construction of the temple but they've already lost when it comes to the renewing of the altar and the sacrifice system, that daily sacrifice to God or giving God what he's due. Chapter 4 then is a record of many years of adversarial resistance to the work uh, that God's put on these people, and here we see God's response to that work. What's interesting is that the, the pausing of the hard work on the temple is also they actually go back and start tending to their own homes. If they can't build the temple, they're going to build something. So God gives them almost a pause here or a respite where they can go get their houses set up and do things. And, you know, God's telling them it's time to get back to work. Why are you spending so much time on your homes? But I think it's interesting that God does give them 15 years to build their homes. And he allows that before these prophets start really encouraging people to move. The other thing with the prophets is they come with a conviction, but they also come with a warning. So it mentions the prophet Haggai. We have that book in the Bible. Uh, if you are at Haggai, you can flip there. Um, they're directly told to go build, and I want to just read it. I, I just want to go right to Haggai and read the prophecy so that we get the sense of verse 1 and how important this prophetic voice was in their life. Um, and again, prophets are named prophets because God speaks through them and it's confirmed in some way, shape, or form. So when we see Haggai coming in saying, I'm proclaiming the word of God to the people of Israel, um, it's significant because if he's wrong, they would kill him and throw away everything he wrote. But the fact that he's right about everything and has been confirmed as a prophet makes him a very significant character in Jewish tradition. So let's just read it. In the second year of King Darius, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and Yeshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, saying, What's in, like, we think of prophecy sometimes as being obscure and hard to understand because a lot of times I think the enemy does this. He focuses non-Bible studiers to focus on the prophecies that are very hard to understand, dreams, images, metaphors. But not all prophets are like that. Some of the prophets literally give dates and times and who God is speaking to, like we see in, in Haggai. Verse 2 says, Thus speaks the Lord of hosts, saying, the, This people says, The time has not come, the time that the Lord's house should be built. So this, this lands the in verse 1, the sixth month, the first day of the month. This actually lands on the Day of Atonement. So when Haggai speaks to the people, he's talking to everyone who's gathered together for the Feast of the Tabernacles. And, you know, 
the people are saying don't build or it must not be time to build. Verse 2 is kind of a response to what might have been going on here is with all this adversarial friction to building the temple, it must mean that because there's friction, God doesn't want us to do it. And frankly, that's usually a pretty safe way to understand because God will clear the path for God's work. But sometimes God work, God's work has a lot of friction to it, and they're using that to argue that the time has not yet come for them to build, so they're waiting on it. But then this word comes of the Lord, came by Haggai the prophet, saying, Is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses and this temple to lie in ruins? So is that what you're thinking, is that you can just stay in your houses the whole time? The fact that the houses have been paneled says that they're upper class. They've been well taken care of. God starts with a little conviction, and you're, the conviction is they're tending to themselves, but they're not doing the work of building the temple, which they'd been given permission to do. Haggai chapter 1, verse 5, Now therefore, says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Think about it. You've sown much, and you bring in little. You eat, but you don't have enough. You drink, but you are not filled with drink. You clothe yourselves, but nobody's warm. And he who earns wages, earns wages to put, a put, to put them into a bag with holes. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Repeated. I think when God lays out a conviction, sometimes that conviction is just thinking about things. And the question he's asking him is, how come you have all these things, but you're not fulfilled? How can you eat and not get full? I mean, it's not a riddle. Look at the fruit of your life. And it's amazing how life with God is fulfilling and life without God or not doing God's work tends to leave us, tends to have us come up short. When you know you're in God's will, I think there's a beauty to that and that you can be satisfied with it. You work, you spend your money, you rest, but that whole idea of just getting up, working, going to bed, and doing it day after day, week after week, it wears you out. And you just get this sense that nothing sticks, nothing stays. There's nothing valuable about that lifestyle. And that's the conviction God gives them. They have a command from God and from Cyrus, but they're delaying in that command in order to avoid these people that don't like that they're building a temple. And then it says, go up to the mountains and bring wood and build the temple. Pretty clear prophetic voice from God. Go do the thing I told you to do, that I might take pleasure in it and be glorified, says the Lord. You looked, so, you looked for much, but indeed it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why, says the Lord? Because of my house that's in ruins, while every one of you runs to his own house. Therefore the heavens above you withhold the dew, and the earth withholds its fruit. And I called for a drought on the land and in the mountains, and on the grain, and on the new wine, and the oil, on whatever the ground brings forth, on men and livestock, and on all the labor of your hands." God owns everything. And when you feel like you're just putting in the work and the toil and the trouble and just nothing's coming of it, at least in Haggai, that's one of the ways God talks to his people is that consider the fact that you're working so darn hard and you're not, you don't seem to be getting anywhere with your work. God tries the natural elements to get their attention. Again, Haggai's evidence that God does use drought to tell a people that they're on the wrong track. He uses... Um, the the uh, the withholding of rain to do that he 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 uses smaller crops and crops not bringing bringing forth the abundance that they should and I think back to like Exodus when you had people like waiting for the rain to feed the crops versus pumping the water from the River Nile and we talked about just watering by foot and that's doing it the human way or waiting for God to bring the rain and how much more effective rain is than trying to foot pump your irrigation and that's kind of what God's putting before them is look at how hard you guys are working and it doesn't seem to be getting you anywhere because at the end of the day if I withhold the rain no amount of work is going to bear the fruit you think it should bear and sometimes not all the time but sometimes that's God's getting our God's getting our attention when you consider your days and you think how far is all of your hard work getting you and it's not getting you very far that's one of the ways that spiritually we we become awakened to the fact that we need a relationship with God. So they get back to work. Then Zerubbabel and the son of she Shealtiel and Yeshua, the son of Jehoshadak, the high priest with all the remnant of the people obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the words of Haggai the prophet as the Lord their God had sent them and the people feared the presence of the Lord. Again, that's not that they're quaking in their boots. It's they respect that God's talking to them so they get moving. 
Verse 13, Then Haggai, the Lord's messenger, spoke to the Lord's message to the people, saying, I'm with you, says the Lord. What a beautiful message. When you get up in the morning, go to work, and then go to bed at night, and you do it day after day after day, and you're in that grind, what a beautiful thing to know God's with you in the grind. And, and that just changes the nature of everything we do. So the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Yeshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God. And on the 24th day of the sixth month in the second year of King Darius. So again, very specific words from God. You guys need to get to work on the temple. They obey those very specific words. Again, this is, doesn't take anyone to interpret Haggai. It's very straightforward. So Haggai again brings the word of God when they set the foundations. And for those, remember, there were some that were weeping when they saw the foundations and some that were crying. So then here's another prophecy that he brought on that very day, which we mentioned when we studied chapter 3. In the seventh month, on the 21st month, the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet saying, Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and Yeshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to the remnant of the people, saying, First of all, wouldn't it be cool to have your own prophet that every time you need to hear from God, somebody showed up and said, Hey, I'm just here to speak to you today. God sent me a message to directly for you by name. Verse 3, Who is left among you who saw this temple in its former glory? And how do you see it now? In other words, what are you crying about? You're seeing a smaller foundation, but what do, you, what do you think you're looking at? In comparison with it, is it not, is this not in your eyes as nothing? So the people in chapter 3 were looking at the foundations thinking, this is nothing. This is so unimpressive. This is a small temple. Yet now be strong, Zerubbabel, says the Lord. And be strong, Yeshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. And be strong, all you people of the land, says the Lord, and work, for I am with you, says the Lord of hosts. That's the encouragement they got from Haggai. So he's standing up when they're all gathered, and some of them are crying, and some of them are shouting. And the, he, as a prophet, is saying, this is what God says to us right now. According to the word that I covenanted with you when you came out of Egypt, so my spirit remains among you, do not fear. In other words, the size of the temple isn't the big deal. The big deal is that there's a place on earth that represents God's work. Deep encouragement for God to say, I'm with you in the work. Uh, and honestly, what more could we ask of a living God? That as we go through our days and we spend 70 so years, plus or minus a decade, we spend that time on this earth and to just know that God's with us in that work and in that time is a balm to the soul. And we can do the same thing with our lives. We can look at our lives and think of how small it is and how the foundation we laid doesn't look like that of Moses or Peter or Paul. But everything we do for God is what God sees as valuable. And don't let our eyes deceive. that the, the, What they see with their eyes is the thing that's deceptive. When we look at our own lives living for the Lord too, you can think, oh, but I have such a small life. And the Lord wants that small life. He wants you to do what he's called you to do. But he makes a far more powerful promise to them here that this is going to be the temple that, that Jesus is coming to. This is going to be the temple of visitation or the temple of peace. And God's going to offer peace to all humanity in this building that they're going to build. This is the location on earth that that will happen. So physically, this is a much smaller location. But spiritually, the impact of this temple is far more significant than Solomon's temple. Significant, important, and God is with you, which is priceless. I'm with you in doing it. And, and again, with their eyes, with Solomon's temple, they could see the Shekinah glory show up. Everything confirmed God was with them visually. But here, all they get is God's word through Haggai. And that's, a, that's absolutely a shift in the relationship of not living by sight because we walk by faith, not by sight. And so in this covenant, he's saying, the covenant I made with you back in Egypt, it's still the same covenant, only you're not going to see a Shekinah glory this time around. Which again, we're one step away from Jesus Christ. And God doesn't want us to live by sight. He wants us to live by faith. And all he gives us to have that faith is his word. And in this case, it's not the word shouting from the top of Mount Sinai like with Moses. It's the word coming through Haggai. And I got to think Haggai, like most of God's servants, looks pretty humble. There's nothing about him that would be remarkable. 
And the word you get is be strong, do the work, and don't fear. Very straightforward working person's prophecy here. It's not a shift in God. It's the same God that's wanted this all the time. And then the great confirmation at the end, my spirit remains among you, do not fear. In the new covenant, we go even further. Romans 8, 9, the spirit of God is in us when we accept Christ into our lives. But in this covenant, the spirit remains among the people. Um, again, when Jesus is asked where the kingdom is, remember he says the kingdom is among you. And he uses the same language from Haggai there because that is the covenant that they're under before the cross and saying this is where the kingdom is. And, and he gets that straight from Haggai. Verse 6, For thus says the Lord of hosts, Once more, it is a little while, I will shake the heaven and earth and sea and the dry land, and I will shake all nations, and they shall come to the desire of all nations, which is another name for Jesus. Um, I will fill this temple with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, says the Lord of hosts. The glory of this latter temple shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place, I will give peace, says the Lord of hosts. It's, it's amazing. All nations are going to come to this temple to glorify God, and he's going to shake up the earth at this spot. Literally, on Christ's crucifixion, the earth does shake. Um, but there's a spiritual shaking, too, when Jesus frees us from sin and death. Um, they've stopped the work. They're living for themselves. They're struggling again. And they're struggling according to God because they're not about the business of doing God's work. Um, I, one of the things that I walk away from Haggai is this. like This is such a huge thing. You can work as hard as you want in your own flesh and you will come up short when it comes to your happiness and your joy. And there's just no way around it. Like this truth is in Haggai, but it's true for everybody that's trying to follow the Lord. And you wonder when, why people would live in such a way where they're just getting eaten from the inside out. And when you work for God and you do things for God, you can take all of your concerns and relax and God takes care of you. In, in verse 8 of Haggai 2, it says, The silver is mine and the gold is mine. It's likely they were worried because when they laid the foundations, they were starting to already run out of the money that they got from Persia. Or they spent a lot of that money on their houses. And now there's maybe a conviction there that they just don't have the resources to build the temple the way they wanted to, which has kind of taken some of the gas out of their tank. So God's just explaining, like, the silver and the gold is mine, which we're going to see later in Ezra 5. God's going to actually take care of the money part of this thing. So believing God in that sense should make us more generous, not less. The fact that even if we don't have the money we think we need, that God does, and he can move that money from unbelievers to believers in a second. And it's kind of fun when he does that. So the idea that God owns everything gives us an attitude where we don't have to worry about owning things we can trust in the Lord. The glory of this latter temple shall be greater. And that's not for Latter-day Saints. That's for this second temple versus Solomon's temple. God gives them reason to do work. He points them in the direction on what work to do. And then he gives this great promise. And in this place, I will give peace. Isaiah 9, 6, one, another one of Messiah's names is the Prince of Peace in Isaiah 9, 6. Jesus is going to arrive at this temple he will become incarnate God at this temple, and this is where he's going to show up and do his work. So they don't. what they're building doesn't look all that special, but God's going to use it in, an, in a very special way. And then he challenges the priests who should have been leading the way on this command. On the 24th day of the ninth month in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Now ask the priests concerning the law, saying, if one carries holy meat in the fold of his garment, with the edge he touches the bread or stew or wine or oil or any food, will it become holy? And the priests all answered, no. And Haggai said, if one who is unclean because of the dead body touches any of these, will it be unclean? So the priests answered and said, it'll be unclean. So he's going back to the law of cleanliness. It's in Leviticus. And there's a principle here. The idea is that sin is contagious. Holiness is not. If I touch something that's nasty, I become nasty. If I go out and pick up a road carcass on the side of the road, I should not put my hands and put them in my mouth because corruption is, courage, is contagious. 
And think of the message he's sending the Israelites here. You guys came with the right attitude. Remember, they were of one person in Ezra chapter 1. They were unified on this mission. They were excited about it. They were singing praises about it. But over time, corruption sets in, and they become more selfish. But the idea of holiness here is an interesting one because purity only goes in the wrong direction on this world that we live in today. Sin corrupts. Corruption spreads. If you get any degree of corruption, uh, you it, it corrupts the whole thing. You put one ounce of uh, vomit into your water, you don't drink the water. The whole cup gets tainted. Holiness works the opposite way, only when God's involved. This is why it's significant that when the leper touches Jesus, the leper gets cleaned. Only God can spread holiness. And only God can make things holy because only God purifies. And then in Haggai, he answers and says, so this is the people, verse 14, and so is this nation before me, says the Lord, and so is every work of their hands and what they offer there is unclean. When you're doing stuff outside of God's will, everything you do becomes unclean because corruption works one direction in this world. The annual offerings that they were doing at that altar, basically Haggai is saying, those, all, those offerings aren't satisfying God because it's a routine for them. The work God's asked them to do is to build the temple, build the house of God, build the family of God. And if they're not tending to that, then nothing else they do matters. It's just religious practice. And it may be that, again, this is convicting from Haggai. It could be that they felt shame, cowardice. We already talked about that they might be feeling like they lack money. We already talked about that it might feel like that there's resistance and hostility so they're just going to make nice with everybody. But God puts it out in the open. At the end of the day, that's cowardice. You guys are impure. And if your hearts don't want to serve God, your hearts are actually as impure as if they were a corpse. They're dead. He also blesses. As they lay the foundation, God promises them a blessing, and he tells them to mark the day. Like, pay attention to when this happens. It's a significant shift for God. It's one step closer to the church age. Pay attention to this day. And in verse 15, it says, Now carefully consider from this day forward. They're supposed to very much pay attention that what he's doing right now is to start a new age. What's interesting is when he, Genesis obviously is the biggest miracle in the world, but then you get Exodus where all the plagues happen, and, and again, miracle after miracle with Moses. Then you get Joshua and Jericho's walls fall, miracle after miracle as they conquer the land. And then as they, they go through through David and, and Solomon, you see miracles happen with David. You see wonders happen with the ark. You see the Shekinah glory moving back and forth. And then the nation crumbles under its own sin and goes off to Babylon. And they're coming back and God is promising them glory, but they see nothing with their eyes. There's no manifestation of a miracle here, which is, I think, getting us closer to the church age. We've lived 2,000 years, and we, when we see miracles, we have to look for them. And that's part of why I'm doing this with Ezra chapter 5. Ezra 5 is significant because Ezra 5 and 6 are recording a miracle that they've looked for. But it's not just this obvious visual spectacle. It's that they are carefully considering what's happening here. And if they carefully consider it, they realize, oh, this is how God works. And we see the way God works in Ezra is really similar to how he works most of the time in today's age. Most of the time today, we see things unfolding and weaving through people and through connections with other people, and we see God do wonders when we open our eyes and consider it. But we don't see a big cloud in the sky. We don't see shining lights or transfigurations. We don't see blood coming from the heavens. We don't see, uh, I mean, the Nile turning into blood. We don't see frogs coming from the heavens. Those kinds of things we don't see, but we do see that God is still at work if we carefully consider what's going on around us. So Haggai 2.15, Now carefully consider from this day forward, from before stone was laid upon stone in the temple of the Lord. Like mark this day. You guys have been struggling so hard for 15 years. You're barely scratching a living out of this. But when you start the work on the house of the Lord, watch what happens. Watch your prosperity. Pay attention to your pocketbook. Since those days when one came to a heap of 20 ephaths, there, but there were but 10, when one came to the wine vat to draw out 50 baths from the press, and there were but 20, I struck you with blight and mildew in the, 
in the hail in and hail in all the labors of your hands, yet you did not turn to me. Again, God's using all of this struggle to try to get their attention. And he's asking them to think about it. Think about the misfortunes you've gone through. I think this is a great evangelical tool, by the way. You talk to somebody that's been living for themselves for a while and you're like, look at how hard you work. And have you ever considered that those struggles, those trials, those just the, the, the turmoil in your life, is God chastening or disciplining or warning you? Have you ever considered that everything that in your heart is in a knot right now, it might be in a knot because you're not going in to hear the word of God every week? You're not building God's house. You're not serving his people. And maybe, just maybe, those stresses you have is because you're more concerned about yourself than about the work of God. And I think that's one of the hardest shifts in the world. I think it's the shift to adulthood as a spirit, in a spiritual sense. Is when do you start thinking about God's work more than your own work? When does God's will become more interesting and more compelling than your own will? When does that shift happen? And, and Haggai encourages them in verse 18, Consider now from this day forward, from the 24th day of the ninth month, from the day that the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid, consider it. Again, we're told three times, consider it, consider it. Is the seed still in the barn as yet the vine, the fig tree, the pomegranate, and the olive trees have not yielded fruit? But from this day I will bless you. Haggai tells the Israelites, if you do the work that he's asked you to do, he's going to bless your nation. And he, he begs them to pay attention to it. Consider this. You have less than what you think you should have for your work now, but just mark the day on your calendar and start tracking this. And again, this is a major shift in the relationship between God and his people. A major shift. He's not asking them to look and see. He's asking them to consider. And he wants them to just tend to this idea. They're done with idol worship. He's proved that he's more of a God than the idols are. But then you get this think about it sort of relationship. God wants us to actually track it. And I think in the church age, this is why you have Christians that keep prayer journals. They keep track of things they've asked for because no matter how mundane the answer to that prayer is, God's saying that he's orchestrating those answers, which is why we have prayers and praises because when we consider it and we track how God got things done, it becomes amazing how that all works together for good. Then Haggai conveys that God is calling out Zerubbabel by name. This is as could this would if you're Zerubbabel and you've got a prophet coming saying God's talking directly to you, uh, you have you know one of two choices, and Zerubbabel makes the right one. And again, the word of the Lord came to Haggai on the twenty-fourth day of the month, saying, "Speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, saying, I will shake the heaven and earth. I will overthrow the throne of kingdoms." I will destroy the strength of the Gentile kingdoms. In other words, Zerubbabel might be fearful that these neighboring kingdoms are going to come slaughter him. It's happened before. There is a thing called anti-Semitism. I will overthrow the chariots and those who ride in them. The horses and their riders shall come down, every one by the sword of his brother. In that day, says the Lord of hosts, I will take you, Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shealtiel, says the Lord, and I will make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you, says the Lord of hosts. When you consider an almighty God coming down to a, an individual, Zerubbabel, it had to be hard growing up thinking, I'm, I should be on the throne of David. I'm, I'm a prince in the line. But after 70 years in, in Babylon, like that line is humbled. Zerubbabel has no crown, he has no scepter, he has no throne. He's a tiny remnant leader, insignificant compared to Persia and the mighty. And the Samaritans were more numerous and powerful and aggressive. And God promises this guy, this humble non-king, and he says, I choose you. And in doing that, I will, I will rearrange the world's order for the work that I've asked you to do. I'll move heaven and earth. So just be faithful in it. God's going to handle Persia. He's going to handle Samaria. He's going to handle the Philistines. God will handle all these people that are so aggressive around you. But that's God's business. And, and it's interesting that God is still treating the line of David. He goes to Zerubbabel. He doesn't go to Yeshua. He's still treating the line of David as though Zerubbabel is the king of his people. 
He doesn't go to anyone else. So even without an earthly throne, God is still honoring the line of David as a throne that is generationally still intact. In other words, earthly authority means nothing to God. His leaders are picked for spiritual reasons, and which makes you really want to know who this Zerubbabel is. Now, I was just thinking we get very little sense of his personality and his character in the Bible. And, and in that, maybe that's a clue to who Zerubbabel was, that he was an extremely humble guy that didn't have a kingship. So to be a signet ring is one of the symbols of a king. Um, the re way you used a signet ring is it had a pattern drawn into it. Grant should be teaching this. And you would take that pattern on your ring and you'd put it into hot wax and it would be used to seal letters. And because it was a unique carving, people would recognize that as the seal of the king. So when he says, Zerubbabel, I'm going to make you a signet, it's a very interesting way to phrase that he has authority, but he doesn't have a scepter, a crown, or a throne. Images of worldly authority. All he has is the word. And that Zerubbabel's signet is going to be put on those letters and the words of God. Uh, Zerubbabel probably felt small, felt helpless, but he's still in the line of David. And, he's, and it's a cue to the Jewish people to tune into the line of David. What's interesting about Zerubbabel is he is the last person in the, the family tree of both Joseph and Mary. So the, the line splits here when you go from Matthew to Luke's genealogy. And Zerubbabel is the, the last of the common people that are in that line. That makes So if you think about it, we always talk about David and Solomon preparing and building the temple. We rarely talk about Zerubbabel, who does the exact same thing. And, and it's, it's, so you're just thinking about who this guy is, he's the lineage of Jesus Christ, but there's nothing about him that's special. There's no heroic stories. He's kind of cowardly. He looks small in regard to Persia and the, the might of Darius and, and Cyrus and these other characters around him. But we are one step closer to God's relationship with humankind. They said about Jesus, there was nothing about him visually that would make him stand out in a crowd. That's an interesting description. You get both conviction and encouragement in Haggai and, and direction. So when we are back in Ezra 5 and it says these two guys prophesied to the Jews, there's some weight to that prophecy. And imagine how that prophecy would have landed on Zerubbabel. And then he would, would have gone to Yeshua and Yeshua would have been like, yeah, I'm with you. Let's do this. So building this temple, knowing that people were enraged at the rebuilding of God's temple, um, just a powerful voice. I'm not going to do all of Zechariah. It's too long, but I'm going to read you two short passages from Zechariah um, because that's the second voice that's named here in Ezra. Uh, Zechariah 4.6, So he answered and said to me, This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel. He's got two different people coming up saying, God told me something to tell you. Not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. We all know that verse. That was first given to Zerubbabel saying, you need to do this thing that you think is too big for you. But I'm asking you to, the Lord said, I'm asking you to do it. Take a step of faith, walk forward by the spirit of God, not because you have anything in this world that would be notable. The hands of Zerubbabel, um, verse 9, have laid the foundation of this temple. His hands shall also finish it. And then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. You're going to find out that I'm with you as you do the work. And I don't think this is any different today. I'm reading this and it sounds a lot like the church age. You do the work of God, you recognize the presence of God. For who has despised this day of the small things? What a great verse. Who's despised the day of small things? Who looks at the work of God and says, this is not impressive? I'm not impressed. What arrogance that would take. For these seven rejoice to see the plumb line in the hand of Zerubbabel. They are the eyes of the Lord, which scan to and fro throughout the whole earth. God's looking everywhere on this planet for people that are willing to do the humble work of God. And that humble work, to hold a plumb line is to do the carpentry, to, to make something straight. And a plumb line is a very simple tool. You put a weight at the end of a string and you drop it and then you make the marks so that you can get your first post straight up and down. You can do the work and do it properly. Zechariah 5 also promises that God will deal with the thieves, the perjurers, and the false, uh, the people using God's name in vain. 
multiple prophetic voices saying, finish the temple, healing is coming, God will deal with the problems. The God of Israel who is over them back in Ezra. The idea being God is their Lord and Persia is not. This is interesting as we get a government that's getting less and less tolerant of God's people and we see governments all over the world getting less and less tolerance of God's people. God remains our God, not those governments. The governments are small to God. Zerubbabel, Yeshua, you've got the throne of David and the high priest together. The next time we see a covenant from God, Jesus becomes both the king and the high priest. Ezra comes with the second wave. Right now, all you've got is Yeshua. I think God did that on purpose. He literally put the name Jesus in the Hebrew in the story of this temple building. And in the first wave, all you have is the line of David and Yeshua, the high priest. They were with them and helping them. That's an interesting note. I mean, it takes time to write these things down. The helping them, what does helping them mean? Is helping them that they're providing these words of encouragement that would get everybody revved up? Or does helping them imply, like, like Zechariah implies, they're actually getting out the plumb line and helping with the work? Like he's the king of the country, but he's doing masonry and carpentry and woodworking. The idea that they pitch in is one, I think that's fascinating. That, it, that wherever you're at, if you're with God's people, you're not above helping and doing the work. So the work begins again. The prophets are helping, whatever that means. They're encouraging, they're reminding, or they're actually pitching in on the manual labor. And the people rise up and they begin to build. This is what happens while adversaries are still attacking them. We're going to see in Nehemiah, they kept half of the workforce to guard the work site. So this is, you know, active assault and aggression coming while they try to do this. But when God speaks to them, they rise up and build. And when God speaks to us, we do the same thing. We rise up and build. We do the things God asks us to do, no matter how unimpressive that looks. What do you do in the face of all the stress in the news and the turmoils in the news? You do the work of God, and it's simple and joyful and peaceful and wonderful. And only God's word does this. I think that alone is a miracle. It's not one you see with your eyes, but you ask somebody when they've been faithfully in God's word for a year and you say, where are you at compared to a year ago? Most people are like, I'm a different person than I was a year ago. When you wash yourself in God's word constantly and consistently, you change over time. It's the only thing that really does that to people. Luke 19, 13. So he called 10 of his servants, delivered to them 10 minus, and he said to them, do business till I come. We just studied this in the morning Bible study. It's the same thing for us. We're called out by God to do business until he comes back. And what's the business? Well, the business is the, the, the four pillars. Pray, read the word, fellowship, and worship. I mean, it's like the Beatles. Everybody's got their favorite of the four. And so you usually got your least favorite of the four. But pray, feast, study, worship. It's a very simple combination. That's the business we're supposed to be about. And of course, Jesus says at the end of Matthew to share the gospel to all nations by doing those four things. As, they, as soon as they start back in, what's interesting in verse 3 of Ezra 5, the opposition shows up again. They were actually getting along fine with their neighbors. If they just get along, they got to play along and get along. But as soon as they restart the work, and, that, and I think verse 3 starts that way, at the same time, the, the, them rising up and building will rise up the enemy to conflict what's going on. It's amazing how that works. You are fine with everybody until you start saying the word Jesus around them and you're not cursing. You're fine with all your coworkers. You're fine with your family. You're fine with everybody until you actually get about the business of proclaiming his name. And there's power in his name. In verse 3, at the same time, Tatnai, the governor of the region beyond the river, and Shethar Bosnai, which means bright star, and their companions came to them and spoke thus to them. Who has commanded you to build this temple and finish the wall? They questioned the authority. This is a curious thing. Well, here's the, the simple answer is, well, God has told them to do it. We know that from Haggai. That's why we just got done reading it. But there's also an earthly command from Cyrus. Remember, they went back with a command to build the temple. So in stopping, they're actually defying Cyrus's order because they stopped the work. So, but they stopped the work because remember the challenge we got back in chapter four and they were told to. So chapter four is a challenge 
of the hostility and the aggressive stuff, but this is a different kind of challenge or a different kind of conflict. And we get books like this so that we can, when we see this stuff in the world, we can know what it is and recognize it for what it is. By what authority do you do this? It's an it's a interesting question that, that they get. And if you look at Luke 20, verse 2, it mirrors the same question they asked Jesus, by what authority do you do these things? And, and, that, and, and frankly, it's happening on the same piece of ground, right? They likely came up to the work site and they would have likely been around the foundations of the work site, which is where the courtyard of the Gentiles is. I think the way God works, they're probably standing on the exact same spot. By what authority do you think you do this? And this is the thing with the kingdom of God. Who runs our lives? Who actually has authority? Do we have authority? Because if we have authority, then the strongest among us have authority over the weakest among us. But if God has authority, it doesn't matter how strong or weak we are. In fact, God says, I'll take the weak and make them strong for my glory. Because God actually has the authority. So the aggression here is indicative of the adversary from chapter 4. Uh, the adversaries were aggressive in it. Um, but this kind of challenge seems a little more innocuous. This time the challenge comes from Tatnai. The name means gift. I think Tatnai in the end becomes a gift to the Jews. You get the sense that in chapter 4 there was an aggressiveness to it, a hatefulness from the Samaritans. Tatnai is likely getting an earful from these Samaritans. And they're going to him saying, look it, they started building again. And you, you got to think like they're just insane about this. What difference does it make if they build a little temple on a hill over there? But the challenge then comes to Tatnai. So he's like, well, all right, let's sort this out because let, you know, let's make everything smoothed over. So every move of God on earth gets met with resistance. Sometimes it's aggressive. Sometimes it's just earthly authorities trying to keep the peace because aggressive people have made a problem. Based on Tatnai's behavior, it is pretty clear that he doesn't hate the Jews, but he is trying to figure out what's going on because he's got to respond to the Samaritans. And he's tasked with keeping the peace. This is where peace is interesting. And again, it's interesting because of Haggai's prophecy that God will actually send peace in the environment of this hostility and conflict. Oddly, uh, the answer they give seems a little out of line with the question. Verse 10 kind of implies this too. Then accordingly, accordingly, we told them the names of the men who were constructing this building. Like they just tattled on their friends. Who gave you the authority to do this? Zerubbabel. And they point to the leaders. Uh, so accordingly. But the eye of their God was upon the elders of the Jews so that they could not make them cease till a report could go to Darius. I, this is abbreviated, I think. It's an introduction to what we're about to read. They were told by Haggai to consider Consider this day. Consider what God is doing and mark the day. And I think with five, we get this introduction to what's about to be the first recorded instance of people considering events that look mundane. There's nothing to see here. But when you consider them, they're clearly spiritually inspired. And God has clearly intervened in what was going on. So it is not by, not by sight, but by faith. And, I, and what's fascinating about Ezra 5 is it's, it's, the, it's an instance where God shows them something without using their eyeballs. He's just asking them to watch what happens. So Haggai and, uh, I don't know, who told you to build this? And they just point at Haggai, Zechariah, Zerubbabel, Yeshua, those guys. We're doing it because they said to. So this is both true. They might have added the Cyrus documentation, uh, but I still think it's funny that they don't have any Persian position of note and they just start tattling on each other. Unlike chapter 4, there the aggressors were abusive and went around their backs. With Tatnai, they actually answer him. He comes straight to them and he asks for himself what's going on here. And he doesn't let other people taint his opinion of the events. So Tatnai is presented as actually responding the way a good leader should respond. When a good king is to seek out the facts of the matter on a, on a situation. So Tatnai does that. The fact that he has to travel to them to see what's going on, I think that's interesting too. Uh, he goes out of his way to, to sort this out. And, but in verse 5, the eye of their God. The idea here is that they're constructing this building and 
implying the names of the men who were constructing this building as who did it, and then the eye of their God was upon them. I think they're referencing the prophecies. We're working because God is watching us. And when you give that kind of reason for the hateful enemies of chapter 4, that's just going to enrage them more. But for a level-headed enemy like Tatnai, that's like, okay, well, let's look into this. I'm, there, there's no indication of bias or doubt that God is actually with these people. So if God is with them, I don't want to stop them. We saw this reaction from the Pharisees when they're arguing in the book of Acts. Well, if God's with these new church people, then they'll be blessed and there's nothing we can do to stop them. But if God's against them, that God will end them. So why are we bothering with them? It was sane advice in this situation. Tatanai acts a lot like that. They could not make them cease. With God's given cause and them saying, we do this for God, there might be Samaritans and officials and elders or workers that are convinced, but if God's watching us, we're going to keep doing what God's told us to do until we're told not to directly. So basically, they tell Tatnai to take it up the chain. Go talk to Darius. And in the meantime, God's told us to resume work. So I think this could have been a tactic, too. Some people argue this, and I think it's plausible. In order to get a letter to Darius and back, it's going to take about a half a year. So this actually just buys them months of time to be working on the temple. You know, so, and Paul does the same thing where he appeals to Caesar, which gives him more time to preach the gospel because they're not just going to kill him on sight. They had to transport him to Rome where he sat in a jail cell and wrote parts of our Bible. It's a delay tactic. And, and sometimes for God's people, that's a good thing. So they're aware of the blessings, I think, at this time of serving God. And that outweighs the opinion or the questioning of authority that comes from non-believers. Tell a report could go to Darius at the end of chapter of, of verse five. Until a report could go to Darius, there is a a, a, a command that's going to go out and come back, which we're going to get here and in chapter six. Then a written answer was returned concerning this matter. This is a copy of the letter Tatnai sent. I think it's funny that Ezra is kind of working from Babylon right now. And he's just recording these letters. So Ezra's actually watching from a distance until the second wave of immigrants comes over. Everything's done officially. Ezra's largely been a recording of these letters. So these official transcripts of what the event. And part of the reason Ezra's writing this book is because Haggai said, consider this day and track this stuff. Part of Ezra's prophetic voice was to also to Ezra to write this stuff down. Because this is going to be something we record in the Bible. Because it's going to be this instance of God manipulating history for his people. And if they don't tune in, they wouldn't get any of this. So copying the letters is very important. Keeping the records is very important. So uh, the copy of the letter, uh, it's not the original. The original would have gone off to the king of Persia. And the copy since stays with the Israelites. That's interesting because Tatnai is actually acting according to Persian protocol. He gives the accuser a letter, he gives the accused a letter, and he gives the king a letter, and it's all the same letter that goes to all three places. Well, the Israelites kept their copy, and we have that record here in the Word. So everything's being done officially, which again indicates the Tatnai is not being vindictive or nasty. Uh, the governor of the region beyond the river, this is the letter, and Shelthar Bosnai and his companions. I like Bonsai better, but the Persians who were in the region beyond the river to Darius, the king. And they sent a letter to him, which was written thus. Again, they, verse 7 is just commentary saying this is an actual recording of the letter. To Darius, the king, all peace. Let it be known to the king that we went into the previous province of Judah to the temple of the great God, which is being built with heavy stones and timber being laid in the walls. And this work goes on diligently and prospers in their hands. Uh, so much in here. We'll go backwards. Note the prospering in their hands. God's actually keeping his promise. While they work on the temple, they're prospering as a people. And that's being written by a non-believing Persian governor. This reads as fair-minded. It's just a recording of what happened. There's no malice. Unlike chapter 4, they're not trying to manipulate the king to influence the outcome. They're not telling the king what to do with the information. He just simply says, here's what's happening. Um, the, the fact that it says that he went into the province, again, implies that there was an intentional visit from Tatnai to come check in on these complaints. And he's like, here's what I see happening. Uh, he mentions, we should note, 
Remember in chapter 4, they were complaining that they're rebuilding the city of Jerusalem and the walls of Jerusalem, tainting it to make it look like these people are building a stronghold. But what Tatnai sees when he goes there is that they're building the temple. And in verse 8, it says, went into the province of Judea to the temple of the great God. No mention of city walls because they haven't started working on those. But the, and, and again, a very different letter than what was sent in chapter 4 because that's what he saw. That's the account. He's just being honest and truthful. And then, of course, he puts in of the great God. It's interesting that the reputation of God is still on the planet Earth, even amongst the non-followers of this God. That Yahweh's considered the great God. That could be a layover from Exodus. Like there's still a certain respect for the Jews because of these um, records of what happened in the time of Exodus. This is the great God. Um, it's clear the Persian belief that the Jewish God is alive and powerful and not to be trifled with. This is part of why treatment of the Jews in Persia went back and forth depending on the ruler or the emperor. Nebuchadnezzar was like, I don't care about Yahweh, and then he went nuts. So it could be that it's the great God because they saw what happened to Nebuchadnezzar and he lost his whole empire over trifling with this God. This God's not to be messed with. And when Cyrus immediately, one of the first things he does is he sends the Jews back to build the temple. Part of it is what happened to Nebuchadnezzar. And he didn't want that kind of curse on his empire. Do remember uh, the, the use of heavy stones and timber, the way this is worded. Um, it, I, again, this is how God works. When it says heavy stones and timber, the implication there is they're actually doing a really good job. They're using good materials. They're using cedars from Lebanon. They're cutting stones. They're doing this competently. And when we get to chapter 6 and we see the, the order, the response letter, it's interesting. Just put a note on that or underline it or keep track of it. Heavy stones and timber is what he saw when he went there. And then he says, diligently, they prospered in his hands. The diligently there, I think, is interesting because it implies that what Tat and I saw was an excited workforce. Usually when people are moving heavy stones and timber, they're not happy about it. They're not diligent in it. They're not waking up in the morning saying, oh, I get to go work on God's house again today. But in this case, they were. They were motivated people. And he makes note of that. They're diligently doing and it's prospering in their hands. These people love what they're doing. And it's humble and it's wonderful. And so I think he's struck by their attitude and he makes note of it for the king. Verse 9, Then we asked those elders and spoke to them, Who commanded you to build this temple and finish these walls? Again, that verse 4 and 5 is like an introduction. So here we get the, the more fleshed out version. We also asked them their names to inform you that we might write names of the men who were chief among them. So verse 10 tells us why they answered the way they did and why that wasn't just a snarky answer. They were answering the second question. And again, that matches Ezra's account here. It's a fair presentation of the facts. He includes the Jewish side of the story in writing, very different from chapter 4. And thus they returned us an answer, saying, We are the servants of the God of heaven and earth. That's who's got us moving. And we are rebuilding the temple that was built many years ago, which a great king of Israel built and completed. So again, it's, it's interesting that Tatnai actually lets the Jews speak for themselves. And then they put God right up in front. Verse 11, we're the servants of the God of heaven and earth. Why are you doing that? Because I'm a servant of Jesus Christ. When we answer things in that kind of way, it's humble because we're servants. And again, Zerubbabel's not a king, he's a servant. And, I, and you know, even the Son of Man came to serve. Um, and you just think of this image and how much closer to the church covenant that this, this period is. These humble people doing work diligently, and when they're asked why they're doing it, they're just servants of God. They're not an empire, they're not a nation, they're not the new Jewish trend. They're just servants. Verse 12, But because our fathers provoked the God of heaven to wrath, he gave them into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar. Nice little reminder of that guy. King of Babylon, the Chaldean, who destroyed this temple and carried the people away to Babylon. Very gentle way to say, because they're remembering Nebuchadnezzar the nut. Like he went crazy at the end of his life. Seventy years. They don't say Nebuchadnezzar is just a tool but it's strongly implied God used that guy to do his own work. 
And um, when challenging that same God, he went crazy and he got replaced by Cyrus, verse 13. However, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Babylon, notice they use the title, King Cyrus issued a decree to build this house of God. They tell him that legally they're here under command of Cyrus. We're doing this legally. Um, they also tell him in the first year of King Cyrus, this would be like when you go to the library and they tell you the call number on the book. Tells you what shelf to look on. So when they say in the first year of King of Cyrus, they're encouraging him, but they're not telling him to go look at the histories. And again, in chapter 4, they're like, look at these histories. And in this particular instance, they're giving a very gentle clue as to where to find the order. And it says Cyrus, King of Babylon. That's the city you should be able to find this record in. The thing with Persian Empire, and this is again, God at work, which we're going to see in the next chapter. The record of... This order isn't found in the city of Babylon, which implies that somebody that hates Jewish people destroyed the order, which tells us a little more about chapter 4 and what happened. But they actually diligently search for it, and they find the order in another city. I'll make this point again next week, too. But the idea of this record being destroyed, under Persian practice, when the king gave an order, it was kept in the city where the order was given, but they made a copy and they gave it out to every one of the city's governors in the empire. So hundreds of copies would have been made. And so all you have to do if you're trying to find a decree that you can't find in your library is you call the next governor over and say, hey, do you got a copy of this decree? And that's exactly what happened. Verse 14, also, the gold and silver articles of the house of God, which Nebuchadnezzar had taken from the temple that was in Jerusalem and carried into the temple of Babylon, those King Cyrus took from the temple of Babylon and they were given to one named Sheshbazar, whom he made governor, saying who, that's the, per, the Persian name for um, Zerubbabel. If Cyrus made Zerubbabel a governor, that makes him the same rank as Tatnai. So you can see what they're doing here is we're working under the orders of Zerubbabel, and there was an open decree that gave him that authority. And he said to him, take these articles, verse 15, Go carry them to the temple site that's in Jerusalem. Let the house of God be rebuilt on its former site. The additional articles show that Cyrus did more than just send them. He actually sent them with the gold and silver to go do it. He supported the building of the temple. Then the same Sheshbazar came and laid the foundation of the house of God, which is in Jerusalem. But from that time, even until now, it has been under construction and it is not finished. So they report all of this. There's no mention of the altar. I kind of like that. The real power of God's people is, are the sacrifices. They don't mention the sacrifices at all, which have, there's no reason to think they stopped. And the fact that they're gathered and Haggai can speak to all the people and he's doing it at the Feast of Tabernacles or the Day of Atonement means they're still gathering at Jerusalem for their feasts, even without a building. And again, the church operates largely the same way. We don't need to go to Jerusalem um, to do our feasts, that's the only change, but we still gather in God's name on a regular basis. So they had paused, but they left out all of chapter 4. They don't even mention the Samaritans. And I think this is interesting. God's people don't take the time to worry about their adversaries. They just do God's work because God told them to, and that's the argument they give. Verse 17 wraps up the letter. Now, therefore, if it seems good to the king, let a search be made in the king's treasure house, which is there in Babylon, whether it is so that a decree was issued by King Cyrus to build this house of God at Jerusalem and let the king send us his pleasure concerning this matter. Again, very diplomatic. They point to their legitimate work. Um, both the adversaries and the Jews are asking for records to be searched, but I think the tone with which they make the request is very different. And one is just like, may it be your pleasure. If Tat and I were an adversary, you'd think he wouldn't include all of this in his letter to, to the king, which he does this without any kind of like animus, and he, he's fair about it. He lets the Jews send their own written version of their story, and the, this gets conveyed to the king. The letter here, I think, is important in that the people of God see God's hand in their response to the letter. They think they're about to get shut down. They're just buying themselves some time. So they're probably building diligently to get as much done as they can before they're shut down again. Um, but God has promised them via Haggai both protection, resources, and peace. So they're moving forward under those promises. 
and they're laying the foundations for peace for the arrival of the Prince of Peace in the midst of a very non-peaceful situation. And in that, God has made them a promise, and this is the first chance God can come through on it. If we had time, I think we're, we're, we're done on time for tonight. If we had more time, it, it would be a good night to just plow through and do another hour and get through chapter 6. I'll just give you the short version now. We'll come to it next week. What comes back is a letter that shows God's got everything under control. And not only do the enemies get told no, they get told no and then some. Like God absolutely flips the power dynamic on the enemies of God and he does it so instantly and miraculously that the people of God write the book of Ezra to record the story. All of this setup we've been doing is to show the people of God how God is working almost behind the scenes to navigate all of human history. And it's a message to God's people even today that this is still how God works. We pray for things and there's power in it. God gives us his word and we can hold that it's true every single word of it. And we can live our lives as though God's word is actually powerful and living and true and sharper than any two-edged sword. We don't need swords because God will do battle for us. And the battle is his and judgment is his. Our job is to worship, pray, fellowship, and uh, study the word. And when we do those things, we are doing what God has told. That's the business we're supposed to attend to. So we'll get back to the letter next week and we'll see. I think we talk about these kinds of miracles all the time. And next week, maybe we can share some of those miracles where it's like, if you even pay attention, look at what God is doing in our lives. And he's weaving things together for good all of the time. So that's Ezra chapter 5 plus your Christmas present of Haggai all in one night. And uh, let's pray. Dear Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for your promises. And thank you that we can trust our lives on every single word you said. Lord, thank you that we don't have to see things to know that you're keeping your promises and you taught your people that. It's not just a shock for today's day and age. It's not that you've left the scene for 2,000 years. Lord, you're working among us. You're working in us. Your Holy Spirit is constantly moving. We see mountains move spiritually on a regular basis. And Lord, we know that your work is at hand. We know that you're in the dreams of the Iranians. We know that you're amongst the refugee camps of the Palestinians. Lord, we know people are calling and glorifying your name all over the earth. We know you're with the church in China underground. We know that there's, there's Christians gathering and singing and feasting all over this planet every single day because you've made a promise to us. Lord, we just thank you for your word. Thank you that it gives us the strength to overcome even mighty nations like Persia and the strength to gather together and to joyfully praise your name that we don't need permission to do that. And when we're asked who gave you the authority, we say the Lord God of heaven and earth gave us the authority to do that. So we just thank you, Lord, that we can be humble, we can be simple, we can be purified by you and not corrupted by the world. And that we can set all of the things that are our, our own business and we can make them second to the work of the Lord. And we can be about your business every single day. And you've given us just that opportunity for us. Lord, we thank you so much that we don't believe in clever fables. We believe in things written and recorded from human history. And Lord, we just thank you so much for what you've done. We thank you for Zerubbabel. I can't wait to meet this guy. And Lord, I don't think that many people even recognize what a hero he was. The simple faithfulness of a man, even without a throne and without a scepter, still leading like the, the children of God need to be led. We thank you for Yeshua, the high priest. We know so little about him. But we just thank you, Lord, that we can look to these men as heroes, um, as people that led and did what they were to do in their own generation. And uh, they aren't heralded like other heroes in the Bible. And Lord, we know in our age we're to do the same thing. It's not about the heralding we get. It's about that we work for you. We have one God and we serve you. Lord, we want to arrive at the end of days and, say, and have you say, well done, good and faithful servant. And so Lord, we thank you for the servant Zerubbabel, uh, a servant of the Lord God. And we thank you that he was, he's not the first and he's not the last, but he's a special one among many. And we thank you for the work of the temple because you could come to this earth as a baby. You could grow up into manhood and give yourself as a sacrifice at this temple that they're building. 
Thank you for all of it. In Jesus' name, 